I want to ask you one of the most fundamental questions you could ever be asked, and here it is. What do you think of Jesus? If I had the time, I would go to each one of you and ask you directly, what do you think of Jesus? It really is the most crucial question. It's the most significant answer you might ever give in your whole life. Undeniably, he has radically shaped the world we live in. I was listening to an interview with Tom Holland, who uh, is a non-Christian historian, who would say that our British culture, even our notion of secularism itself, in our British culture, is undoubtedly and profoundly shaped by Christianity. And at its heart, uh, Christianity is about the identity of Jesus. Who do you say that he is? Now, no serious historian, no ancient historian, doubts the existence of Jesus. There's a, a, a book that's just come out uh, by Peter Williams. He's a great academic. He's the warden of Tyndale House, Can We Trust the Gospels? If you'd be interested in getting that, you could speak to the, uh, the book corner. I'm sure we could get you a, a copy. I've got free uh, copies, four free copies. And, and if the question of can you trust the New Testament is your question, I'll be delighted to give this to you to read. Come and chat to me afterwards. I was reminded this week of a quote from Albert Einstein Uh, that he gave in an interview in 1929. He said this, I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. The journalist asked, you accept the historical existence of Jesus? He replied, unquestionably. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. And he continues to inspire even the most surprising of people. I read an article about a year ago by Russell Brand as he was promoting his book about coming out of addiction. Uh, It might be too hard to read that, I don't know. But uh, this is what he says. My personal feeling is the teachings of Christ are more relevant now than they've ever been. Because I come from a Christian culture, a lot of the language of prayer that I use is Christian. I say the Lord's Prayer every day. I try to connect to what those words mean. I connect to what the Father means. I connect to what wholeness means to me. I think about the relationship between forgiveness and being forgiven and the impossibility of redemption until you're willing to forgive and let go. And then he says this of of Christ. He's just a sort of scriptural rock star, just an icon, unless Christ is right here, right now, in your heart, in your consciousness. I'm not quite sure where Russell Brand is with his faith at the moment. But, you know, is he just an inspiring teacher? Or, as Islam declares, is he just a man who was a prophet of God? Or is he, as the earliest Christians proclaimed, one who was both truly human and truly divine? The eternal Son of God come in human flesh. Now, your answer to that question will potentially change everything about your life today. And I suppose a a good question to ask is, well, what did Jesus say about himself? 
And to answer that question, I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. And you'll find this on page 997 in the church Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, please put your hand up. I think we've got a few left over. We used to have more, but they're gradually walking out of the building. So once you finish with it, if you could leave it behind, that'd be great. We're actually ordering some extra ones. But turn to Matthew chapter 26, and I'm going to read from verse 57, page 997 in the church Bibles. If you haven't got a Bible, stick your hand up, and hopefully we'll get one to you. Here is Jesus on trial before the high priest of Israel. What was his public confession about his identity? Well, let's read from verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am about to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony about these, that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spat in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Well, examine with me three bits of information that Matthew, one of the eyewitness records of the life of Jesus, that he records of this public trial here. Keep it open in front of you and consider what it tells us about Jesus. First thing, a biased investigation couldn't charge him with any wrong. Isn't that extraordinary? Look back at verse 59. The chief priests, the whole Sanhedrin, were looking for false evidence against Jesus, anything that would stick, so they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. This was not a balanced and fair trial. Uh, Even in the middle of the night, witnesses were already summoned and were ready to make their testimony against Jesus. And yet their testimony did not agree as different witnesses came up with different statements that didn't quite add up together, didn't make a coherent case. 
And here is an amazing thing about Jesus in his public and his private life. Because, let's face it, Judas was on the inside and brought the, 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 the guards of the chief priests to find him in Gethsemane. Both in his public and his private life, they could find nothing against him. His life and his speech were blameless. The best they could come up with were these two witnesses who declared, this fellow said, I'm going to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now the best spin you could put on this uh, from their perspective is that Jesus seems to be making threats against the temple, though it's pretty hard to work out how Jesus could have destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in three, himself and then made it back together in three days. It had been taken 46 years to get to this stage and they hadn't quite finished it at the time of Jesus. And here he stands before the leading person of that Jerusalem temple, the high priest. And it was clear to the high priest that the trial wasn't going very well. And you can almost hear the desperation in his question in verse 62. Are you, are you not going to answer? Uh, this testimony brought against you? But Jesus remained silent. Now, of course, here's one approach to false accusations no comment allow lies and half truths to flap and flounder like a fish out of water but I want to suggest to you that the silence of Jesus also speaks of his uniqueness Matthew as he as he writes his gospel is keen to show how the life of Jesus is one that fulfills the the ancient prophecies of their God-given scriptures and uh, he's already quoted from Isaiah chapter 53 in his gospel account. Surely he took up our infirmities, it says in Matthew chapter 8. And, and it seems to me that he's in this no, uh, no comment silence. What's being brought up is Isaiah 53 verse 7. So keep your finger in uh, Matthew's gospel and turn with me back to Isaiah. And you'll find this on page 741 in the church Bibles. Here is uh, Isaiah who was speaking and writing 700 years, over 700 years before Jesus. And it speaks of a, uh, a servant of God who's coming. And if, have a look at verse 3, Isaiah 53 verse 3. This one is going to be despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering, familiar with pain. Look at verse 5. This is the one who will be pierced for our transgressions. Uh, over the page, crushed for our iniquities. Even though he himself was without sin. He's described in verse 11 as the righteous one. So look specifically at verse 6 and 7 with me of this chapter. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. 
So as we read the dodgy trial of Jesus where he bravely does nothing to hinder the proceedings which will, res- which will end with his death, I think Jesus has in mind this very chapter. His death is going to be a sacrificial death for sinners. And actually, he does nothing to stop them from taking him to the cross. He's like this lamb to the slaughter who does not open his mouth. And really, as someone who's a Christian, you you look at this passage and you think, wow, how amazing is Jesus? He did this for me. If you're trusting him, he did this for you. So that we could receive forgiveness. He, he bore our guilt and our shame. He was despised for our iniquities. Bearing them in our place. And if you're exploring the Christian faith today, have you taken a hard look at this Jesus? Have you considered his blameless life? Comparing to any other person in history, he is peerless. And have you come to understand how central his death is for us, for any hope of relationship with God? You see, as Isaiah puts it, our default position is like straying sheep. We are prone to wander away from God, to reject what he says is the right thing to do, to do exactly the opposite. We stray from him. And this is a holy God who's offended by our sin. And yet in his mercy, he does not treat us as we deserve, but on the basis that Jesus takes the punishment for our sins, we can be shown grace and forgiveness. So turn back to Matthew. His silence before the high priest, I believe, echoes what Isaiah promised would happen according to Isaiah 53 and it points to the uniqueness of Christ his blameless life which is the first point his uh, the fact that he is the sinless sacrifice the second point thirdly look at this public confession that he makes verse 63 Jesus remained silent Then the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. The high priest has not had what he wants, so he goes straight to the heart of the issue. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Are you the king promised in our Hebrew scriptures, the one who would bring in God's everlasting kingdom? And I think there's probably something derisory in the you as well. Are you the Messiah. This would be something that would be very alarming to the Roman authorities who would be very interested if there was a claim of a new king in the land that they were in charge of. Now here in the most hostile of environments, in the most public of forums, as Jesus stands before the spiritual leader of Israel, he does not back down to save his skin. You know, it may seem to us as if he's being ambivalent with, you have said so. But it could be uh, translated in such a way where it's, it's quite clearly an affirmation. But what he says next takes it to another level. Uh, he's something far greater than even 
the high priest is, is asking of him. Verse 64, I say to all of you from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, which is a, a, a way of referring to God, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Who does Jesus think he is? It's critical we understand what he's saying here. Because he's claiming not only to be this long-promised Messiah King, he's claiming to be co-equal with God. This is exactly how the high priest understood it. He rips his clothes, he charges him with blasphemy, deserving of death. And the word that really makes it clear is a very surprising word. It's the word sitting. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. So keep your finger again in Matthew. We're going to go back to Daniel chapter 7, page 893. The reality of what Jesus is claiming just pops into, much, into 3D when you understand the Old Testament background. And Daniel chapter 7, um, page 893. If you look at verse 9 and 10, notice who stands and notice who sits. Look at verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Do you get the point? Only God the judge sits. The rest of creation stands before him. But then Daniel sees something more. Look at verse 13. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He's coming to the ancient of days. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus confesses, yes, he is the Messiah, the Son of God, but actually in a way that's far bigger than the high priest was currently understanding. His kingdom is something much bigger than mere earthly politics. His kingdom is one with heavenly authority over everyone and everything. He's the Son of Man on whom God would bestow a heavenly rule over all peoples, nations, languages, and an everlasting kingdom. And by claiming that actually they would see him sitting at the right hand of God, he is claiming to be totally unique. Not just a man, but co-equal with God himself. And I want you to notice as you come back to Matthew that Jesus makes this point very personal to the high priest and to the crowds. From this point on, you will see me as the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. 
Now, this was his confession that he made before those that thought themselves the authority over Israel. He's saying, actually, I'm the authority over Israel, and you're going to see it. One day you will acknowledge it. It's a remarkable scene. There's the guy who thinks he's the high priest, and they stand in judgment over Jesus, who is the true high priest and who is the ultimate judge. Now, of course, this is not something that they accepted, and so they condemn him as deserving of death, and Jesus knew that's exactly what they were going to do. For the scriptures had prophesied it, despised, rejected, pierced for our transgressions. Now, sadly, in human history, anti-Semitic people have used these chapters as a reason to do horrible things to Jewish people because it was the Jewish leaders who rejected Jesus and condemned him to death. But this totally misses the whole point of the Bible. Whatever our ethnic background, whether we're Jewish or lucky enough to be Welsh or some other ethnic background... The natural response we all make to the claim of Jesus to be Lord over our lives is to reject that claim. Our sinful nature is such that we just don't want anybody else to tell us how to live our lives. Uh, We don't want someone else to say what we're doing is right or wrong. We don't want someone to curb our desires and our supposed freedoms. Our sinful nature rebels against this claim of God's right to be God, of Jesus' claim to be Lord of all. And you know what? If we actually get beyond the politeness of conversing with somebody and really press this point home. Watch the actual rejection of people's hearts come out hard and strong. The response of those who had Jesus right in front of them making these claims was a definitive rejection. What do you say of Jesus? They stood there and said, he is worthy of death. What do you say? They spat in his face to kind of physically show how much they despised his claim to authority. They punched him and they slapped him to kind of show how they were the ones with power and he was powerless. And they mocked him. They mocked his claim to be the Messiah and to correctly prophesy this future. All this claim of seeing him on the clouds of heaven. Who who hit you, Jesus? And bearing in mind that Jesus is who he claims he is, what incredible meekness he shows here. One word of prayer, and as we saw last week in the garden, you know, 12 times 12,000 angels could have been there sorting things out. But he, he endures it all. He takes it all. How does he endure such injustice? Well, because firstly, it was all purposeful. He knew that he was achieving our salvation. And secondly, he knew he would be vindicated before their very eyes. From this point on, you will only see me now as the Son of Man, returning in glory. And if they continue their sinful rejection of him as king, they will meet him again as their judge. And you know, you too, you and I, we will both... uh, See Jesus returning as the glorious Son of Man. 
And uh, the point is, we will meet him as our judge unless we've already turned to him and received his forgiveness when we'll rejoice to welcome him as our savior and our king. Uh, We read from Psalm 2 earlier about the futility of peoples and kings plotting against God's king, Jesus. That there's a day coming when God's king would break his opponents with a rod of iron, dash them into pieces like smashed pottery. And so then we get this advice. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son. Acknowledge him. Worship him. Or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, this is the confession of Jesus. This is Jesus, who Jesus is according to Jesus. He is this Messiah King. He is the Son of God. He is the one who's co-equal with God. He is the one who will rule over God's everlasting kingdom. And he's willing to endure the suffering at that point because he is going to be the Savior. He's going to the cross He's going to hold back his power and wrath because he's come to provide salvation for rebel sinners like like you, like me. Now that's what he confessed about himself. What is your confession of who do you say Jesus is? Jesus made sure it was personal to the high priest and those who observed. And it's personal for you and me today. Who do we say he is? Who do we confess him to be? You cannot be indifferent to Jesus Christ. He just made too many massive claims about himself. It really isn't good enough to say that he was was just a prophet or, you know, he's a great teacher. If he isn't who he claims to be, then neither of those things can really be true because he's saying, I am God. And one day you will all worship me and you ought to worship him. He, He is worthy of our whole lives, obeying him, listening to him, following him. Now, what do you do with someone who makes that kind of claim? Well, I'll tell you what you do. You either completely write him off as crazy or evil, or you take him completely seriously and build your whole life around him. Now, why would you take someone who claims such a thing seriously? Well, here's two thoughts. If his life was the fulfillment of many ancient prophecies made hundreds of years before his birth, and he fulfills them all, if he declares that he would be crucified and then on the third day he would rise from the dead and that actually takes place. Now, that's a person that I would listen to and take seriously of such great claims. Those two witnesses uh, before the Sanhedrin did actually quote Jesus. You can find that in John's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus said this there, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. But then John, the disciple, points out and makes it clear that the temple he's referring to was his own body. One of the central confessions of the Christian faith is that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And if you're assured that he died for your sins and rose again, that's what defines a Christian. Have you done that? Have you confessed Jesus Christ? This is what it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth and, and that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the way of salvation. Jesus is not simply a, a person of history. He is a resurrected living reality. Brand was kind of right. If he's just in the pages, it doesn't count. He's got to be in your life. And he can transform our lives if we repent of living for ourselves and turn to trust him as our Lord and Savior. And if you haven't done that yet, why not do it today? Uh, in the bulletin, there's a, there's, a, there's a piece of paper and there's a prayer of repentance that you could use today to respond to Jesus, to make your good confession. Why don't you do that today? And if you do that, let us know. We'd love to help you grow in your faith. And if you need someone to answer some questions or someone to pray for you, they'll be focused at the front. They'll be delighted to do that with you. And my Christian friends, as we go into another week, will we confess Christ this week? We know that there are certain things that are culturally acceptable to say in our culture. Uh, you can just about get away with talking about faith. Because what, what, faith in what? Who knows? You might even be able to get away with talking about church. Will you confess the name of Jesus Christ? If an opportunity comes this week, will you, will you show that you stand with Christ? Yeah, I believe this. I'm staking my whole life on him. You too could do the same. We're going to find out next week that sometimes when the pressure's on, Christians can deny, and we're going to think about that as we think about Peter next week. But let's seek God's grace today that we will, if we're trusting Christ, that we will boldly confess him in this week ahead because Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray.